Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Washington Township, Michigan. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Stephen and Tara Grant met when they were in college, but it wasn't love at first sight, at least not for Tara. Tara actually had a boyfriend at the time, but Stephen was determined that he was going to be her forever. He bided his time in the friend zone and took every opportunity he could to make it out of there. When Tara's grandfather died and she had to go upstate for his funeral, an episode of Betrayed reports that Stephen surprised her at the funeral and the rest was history. Tara felt like he proved that he'd really do anything for her. They dated for a while, got married, and had two kids, a little girl and a little boy. Tara and Stephen's family was the opposite of what's considered the traditional household. Tara was the breadwinner with a six-figure income at a global engineering and construction firm, while Stephen stayed at home with the kids, occasionally working at his parents' machine shop, emphasis on occasionally. Tara's job involved a ton of traveling. She was usually gone throughout the week, a lot of times in Puerto Rico. But when the weekends rolled around, there was no place she'd rather be than with her family. She was the kind of mom that made every celebration a blowout. Click on Detroit reports that for one of the kids' birthdays, she did a cowboy cowgirl theme. And it wasn't just hats, belt buckles, and plaid shirts. She had horses come so that the kids could take horseback rides in the backyard. For whatever reason, as time went on, Stephen decided that he needed help with the kids, who were four and six at that point, so he hired an au pair. An au pair is usually a young woman in her late teens or early 20s who comes to the U.S. to provide childcare and housework for room and board. It wasn't like anything had changed. Tara's work schedule was the same. Stephen wasn't making the machine shop any kind of career, but he wanted help with the kids and he got it. The family went through a few au pairs, but by summer of 2006, they got a 19-year-old woman named Verena from Germany. Verena told the Macomb Daily that the Grants accepted her immediately. She felt like a part of the family, and it was one that she loved being a part of. She told the station that Tara and Stephen generally had the perfect home life. On February 9th of 2007, Tara headed home from Puerto Rico to spend the weekend with the kids and Stephen. Unfortunately, she found out she was going to have to go back a little earlier than planned, so when she got off the plane at around 10 p.m., she called Stephen to break the news to him. Stephen said he was folding laundry at the time, waiting for her to come home, and that he got pretty upset about the schedule change. So upset that it turned into a whole argument about how often she had to travel, and by the time Tara got home, it had escalated into something bigger and she wanted to leave. According to the Detroit News, he said that he heard her on the phone telling someone that she'd either be right out or be out in a minute, and then she was gone. He said that she walked to the end of the driveway, got into a dark-colored car, and left. Tara didn't come home that night, and she didn't come home Sunday night either. She was supposed to catch a flight back to Puerto Rico on Monday, but by Tuesday, Stephen said he still hadn't heard from her, so he called one of her coworkers in Puerto Rico to see if he knew where she was. The coworker said he didn't and that she hadn't shown up for her meeting, and that's the point that everyone knew something was off. According to Dateline, in the 10 years Tara had worked for the company, she had never missed a single day of work. 
I don't know how any human pulls that off, but Tara had. Even though Stephen hadn't heard from his wife in four days, he waited one more until Valentine's Day and instead of calling, drove over to the Macomb County Sheriff's Office and reported her missing. He told them that he hadn't seen her in five days and immediately their ears perked up. They asked him why he'd taken five days to report his wife and the mother of his children missing, and according to Dateline, Stephen told them that Tara had taken off before and he figured she was just blowing off steam and would come back home. For someone who thought his wife was blowing off steam, he sure made very few phone calls to try and figure out where she went. Tara's own family didn't find out she was missing until the police did. And family kind of feels like the first set of people you'd call to try and figure out if your missing spouse is with them. This was one of those times where the police felt icky about a situation right off the bat. So they asked Stephen if they could come to the house and look around. He had them follow him home and they did look around the house, but found nothing that would have indicated where Tara was or what might have happened to her. They did notice a scratch on Stephen's nose, but according to the Detroit Free Press, he told the police that he'd gotten it working at the machine shop. Almost immediately, the news of Tara's disappearance hit the news, and even though the police had their gut feelings, it was reported that no foul play was suspected, because frankly, they didn't have any evidence to support it at that point. Over the next 24 hours, police did searches in the wooded areas surrounding the house, but they didn't turn up anything useful. It had been snowing, so ground searching wasn't exactly easy, but the fact that they were looking in the woods not far from the house sent a message that the media hadn't. Investigators were also able to get a two-hour interview with Stephen, and whatever happened in there did not sit well with either of them, because things started to go downhill really quickly. WXYZ reports that Stephen hired an attorney and stopped talking to the police altogether. He would only communicate with them via fax, which just seems petty. It was 2017, an email existed, and everyone was about to learn real quick that Stephen was a huge fan of the email. Even though Stephen refused to talk to the police, he had no problem getting in front of a camera and talking to the media. In fact, reporter Amanda Hunt with Click on Detroit said that he would call them several times a day to make statements. He'd hop on camera and tell the station things like, if anybody knows, just say something. Just tell us. Call me. Call the police. Call somebody. He also told the Detroit Free Press that, He'd rather Tara be with another man than come to any harm. If you're wondering why he's talking like a knight at the round table, and where in the hell that would even come from, enter Stephen's ex-girlfriend. The media is a powerful thing, and when Stephen's ex-girlfriend saw on the news that Tara was missing, she felt like she should probably show the detectives the email Stephen had sent to her back in January, 15 days before Tara went missing. Shout out to the Detroit News who got a copy of them, and they go as follows. Stephen, I hope you keep at that nursing thing. You never know when I might need a sponge bath. If you want to practice, let me know. Ex-girlfriend, you are married. You shouldn't talk like that. How would you feel if Tira was talking like that to the old geezer? Stephen, 
I was only being helpful with the offer to be a test subject. I know they often draw blood from each other, etc. I was just being supportive, not dirty. I don't care about being married. I never have. It's that no conscience thing, I think. Ex-girlfriend. You have not changed a bit. Don't you worry about being burned eternally by the devil? Why did you get married in the first place? Seem like a cool thing to do? Steven. The answers in order are no, love, and no. I think you misunderstood, though. I like being married. I just think of marriage vows like speed limits. Sometimes you have to break them, and sometimes you get caught. You just need to keep an eye on the road to avoid detection. Ex-girlfriend. So what are you going to do about the cheating wife? I'm so freaking bored today. Steven. I don't know yet. By the way, she does talk to the old geezer like that. That's the problem. Actually, never that direct. Everyone is not as subtle as me. The problem is, she says things in code, and because of that, I don't know what is actually going on. Also, and I thought I told you this, about two years ago, she did the same thing with some guy she used to know. Nothing physical, just text and email and phone calls. I know what you think. I just don't know if it was physical, but I do. The magic of intercepted emails and phone calls. A mutual friend is a vice president at a computer company, and one of his texts helped me out a bit, if you know what I mean. Straight up NSA stuff, if you get my drift. Actually, he had some software, OTC stuff. You can buy at CompUSA. That did the trick. It just sounds cooler the other way. If you're so bored, I'm still in need of some excitement in my day. Wink, wink. Tara flew to London yesterday till Friday night, and I am all alone with no one to play with. Steven, again. By the way, I do want to see you naked. Naked women are always good to see. Especially if you haven't seen them in a while. Photos are nice, but a private modeling session would always be preferable. So let's break this down. First off, Stephen never told police that he thought his wife was cheating on him. Which, by the way, police did talk to the two men he seemed to think Tara was having an affair with. Both of them said it never happened. His wife was missing. He'd been telling his ex-girlfriend that she'd been having an affair. And he never once thought it was important to let the police know you know, in case she'd left him for one of them. Second, for someone who's willing to install software to intercept his wife's communications to try and catch her cheating and come to the conclusion that she's speaking in some kind of code, he certainly has no loyalty to his marriage on his side whatsoever. Talking about how marriage is like a speed limit and asking for sponge baths and then gaslighting the shit out of his ex by saying that he was just offering to help her, like when they practice drawing blood. When these emails were published for the world to see, Stephen continued his pattern of gaslighting by saying that they were foolish and innocent joking. No, they weren't. With Stephen's secret of being a shitbag husband having been exposed, you would think that he might back away from the media, but he didn't. Instead, WXYZ reports that he started telling news stations that he was law enforcement's number one suspect, but that he was innocent. The problem here was that there were no suspects because there was still no physical evidence that a crime had occurred. Detectives had never named him a suspect. They hadn't even spoken to him since their initial two-hour interview, though they did tell the station that they were curious about why information that could be critical to Tara's case hadn't been provided. Stephen had turned over some of the laptops in the house, but not all of them. The one Tara used the most hadn't been turned over. Stephen's attorney told WXYZ that it was because it included Stephen's personal and business documents and privileged information between him and his client. 
I'd love to know what business information was so top secret that the police couldn't see it while trying to locate his missing wife and what he told his attorney that he didn't want detectives to see. With Stephen being of no real help to Tara's investigation, detectives had to rely on the public for tips and even welcome the psychics who called in. WXYZ reports that tips were called in saying that they'd seen her in Florida on Wheel of Fortune and a psychic had said that Tara was in a wooded area. She wasn't in Florida, she obviously wasn't on Wheel of Fortune, and time would tell about the woods. A few days passed without any real updates on Tara's case. They'd asked Stephen to take a polygraph, which he initially said he would, but according to the Macomb Daily, backed out of. His attorney told Click on Detroit that they'd reconsider taking the polygraph if it was done by anyone other than the Macomb County Sheriff's Office, because Stephen felt like he was being harassed by them. That sounded like a crock of shit, but Stephen did actually wind up taking one independently, which a Wayne University article and a local news broadcast reported he failed. On February 23rd, two weeks after Tara disappeared, the sheriff announced that they were going to take advantage of the warmer weather, warmer being in the 30s, and do another search for Tara. They asked for the public's help and to specifically search wooded areas like Stony Creek Park, which was just a few miles from the Grant's house. At that point, Tara's sister Alicia told Click on Detroit that she knew what they were looking for. Though no one had come out and say it, they knew they were looking for Tara's body. More than 100 people came out and combed through the park for hours, but as hard as they tried, they didn't find any sign of Tara. Another empty search had a helpless feel to it. People around the world were waiting for any real break in her case or anything that would point to what happened or outright say who they think was responsible, and it finally happened. Detectives decided to stop holding back and finally used the word suspect. They didn't name a suspect, but they did say that Stephen's actions were suspect due to the discrepancies of what he had told them and what they'd come to find out during their investigation. For example, Stephen had told them that on the night Tara disappeared, he'd heard her on the phone with someone saying she'd either be right out or be out in a minute. But unless Tara was talking on an invisible phone, Stephen was a liar. They checked the records for Tara's cell phone and the home phone, and no calls had happened. The last call she had made was to the house when she had called Stephen. Things had been going downhill for Stephen since pretty much day one, but after this, his solo trip downhill became an avalanche of oh shit. The Macomb Daily was able to track down the Grant's au pair at the time of Tara's disappearance, and she was all the way back home in Germany. Her placement agency had removed her from the home when they caught wind of everything going on. On the night of Tara's disappearance, Verena told the Macomb Daily that when she got home at around 11.30 that night, Stephen ran down the stairs yelling something. She couldn't remember his exact words, but said that it was either, where are you or what are you coming back for now? Those are two very different statements, one seeming to be curious and another seeming to be pissed off, but let's keep going. Verena said that once Stephen realized it was her and not Tara, he apologized and told her that he and Tara had gotten into a big fight and that she'd left. The interesting thing about all of this is that according to the Macomb Daily article, Stephen's version of events was slightly different. Slight enough to almost seem like it wouldn't matter, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Tara got off the plane at around 10 p.m. that night. 
Even if it took her an entire hour to get home, Stevens said that they got into an argument on the phone that escalated into an argument in person and boom, she was gone. That's still at least half an hour before Verena got home, but according to the Macomb Daily, he said that Verena got home minutes after Tara left. Another few days passed with no updates in Tara's case, but on March 2nd, all hell broke loose. Stephen was pulled over just outside of his neighborhood and put into a patrol car. News outlets had been parked all around the vicinity of his house for weeks at that point, so there were cameras rolling everywhere. The news broke immediately, and everyone watched as Stephen stayed in the patrol car for a little under half an hour before they let him back into his vehicle and followed him home. It turns out they had gotten a search warrant to search his entire house and his parents' machine shop. This was a huge deal. It takes a lot of probable cause to get a warrant to search an entire house, let alone a place where someone worked occasionally. But clearly, detectives had gotten enough of it to get a judge to sign off on both of them. Stevens' attorney was pissed. He told Click on Detroit that he didn't think there was enough probable cause to search and that after everything was said and done, he was going to shove that search warrant where the sun don't shine. It's always important to know all the facts before you make statements like that because according to Click on Detroit, a woman who'd been walking her dog found a gallon-sized sandwich bag with blood in and on it. When police tested it, they found that it was human blood, which people don't generally go around putting in plastic bags in the woods, a dog hair, which Betrayed reported was similar to the hair of the Grant's dogs, and microscopic metal shavings, like you would find at a machine shop. In summary, it wasn't Macomb County's sun don't shine that these warrants were about to be shoved into. For hours and hours, investigators were seen going in and out of the Grant home. They were there all night long, and by the next morning, the sheriff was ready to tell the public what they'd found, though I don't think anyone was prepared to hear what it was. According to Dateline, as detectives were searching the Grant's garage, one of them noticed a green tote that he knew hadn't been there when they'd come to the house on Valentine's. He opened it up and saw a bag inside, so he tore it open. Inside that bag was another bag, so he tore the second one open and stuck his hand inside to see what he could feel and said that whatever was in there was moist. He called the evidence techs over to process whatever was in the bag, and what they found was a torso. According to the Detroit Free Press, it was still closed in a blood-soaked shirt, undergarments, and the remnants of dress pants. It was Tara. There was now no doubt that Stephen was not only involved in Tara's disappearance, but also her murder. A warrant was issued for first-degree murder, but the only problem was that Stephen was in the wind. Unfortunately, the search warrant for the house in the machine shop didn't include the detention of Stephen, so when they started searching the house, he put the dog on a leash and walked out. Click on Detroit actually caught him on video walking down the street, and you can see him look back almost as if he was wondering if anyone was watching him. A manhunt began, and it wasn't long before Stevens' attorney made a statement. He told Fox News, I think he's gone, as in dead. 
He said that he'd spoken to him twice since that morning, he'd called from a payphone, and that he had no doubt that Stephen was going to kill himself within minutes. While his attorney thought he might be dead, investigators knew that he wasn't, because he had called his sister to check on the kids who had been staying with her. His sister let law enforcement know, and they were able to trace the call back to Wilderness State Park, which was about four hours north, and he had borrowed an unsuspecting friend's yellow truck to get there. A yellow truck isn't hard to spot in snowy Michigan, and footprints aren't hard to follow, so they tracked him like Hansel and Gretel, and according to Harbor Light News and the Daily Press, they found him hiding behind a tree with no coat and no shoes on. He had a mild frostbite, and according to Betrayed, law enforcement had to carry him out of there like the bitch baby he was and airlift him to a nearby hospital. The whole airlift thing made Stephen's condition sound intense, but let's be clear, he was fine. The staff at the hospital said that Stephen was alert and cooperative with staff, and he was about to be real cooperative with police too, a much different tone than had been set earlier in the investigation. While in the hospital, he wasn't there long, Stephen made a call asking for the lead detective on Tara's case to come in. He wanted to confess, and he did, at least in his version of events, in horrifying detail. According to Dateline, Stephen told detectives that he did fight with Tara that night, but that she hadn't gotten a phone call and didn't leave in some mysterious dark-colored vehicle. Instead, he said that the argument started in the master bedroom and that at one point she started to turn around so he grabbed her wrist and she slapped him. At that point, he said he pushed her and she fell down and banged her head against the wall. When she was on the ground, he said that she started yelling at him, telling that she was going to take the kids and he would be homeless. That is when he says he started to strangle her. The detective asked Stephen if he looked at Tara when he was choking her and he said that he didn't that he had thrown either a gray shirt or gray underwear over her face. He said he knew she was dead when she stopped moving, which, by the way, is complete bullshit. Someone can go unconscious within seconds of being manually strangled, but it takes minutes for it to cause brain damage and then death. Tara would have been motionless for minutes before she actually died. After that bullshit statement, Stephen said that he got really worried because, you know, he had just killed his wife, but worried looks different on different people. To Stephen, worried looked like texting the au pair, Verena, that she owed him a kiss and leaving a note on her pillow with the same message. Yes, he and the au pair had been having an affair. It had been building for some time, and the night before Stephen killed Tara while she was still in Puerto Rico, the Detroit Free Press reports that Stephen finally convinced Verena to sleep in his and Tara's bed. While she was in there, Tara and Stephen's six-year-old daughter walked into the room. So yeah, back to the confession. After Stephen made sure that his au pair knew she owed him a kiss, Dateline reports that he found a belt, wrapped it around Tara's neck, and used it to drag her through the house and into the garage. His plan was to hide her body in her own vehicle, but the first time he tried to get her into it, he dropped her. He gave a horribly vivid description of what her body sounded like when it hit the garage floor, and honestly, I don't want to put it in the episode because it is crass and flippant. Stephen did eventually get Tara's body into her vehicle, and it was at that moment that he says he heard the door opening to the garage. It was Verena who had just gotten home. 
So remember that tiny discrepancy between when she said she got home and when Stephen said she got home? It did matter. Verena hadn't come home minutes after Tara left. She had gotten home minutes after Stephen hit her body. With Verena home, Stephen was panicked because he knew Tara's body was still there. So he left her body in the vehicle in the garage all throughout the next day. It was cold in Michigan, so there wasn't much risk of decomposition giving away what he'd done. The following day, Dayline reports that Stephen took Tara's body to his parents' machine shop, laid down plastic bags, drank some whiskey, found a blade, and dismembered her at every single joint, throwing up a few times in the process. Once he finished dismembering her, he wrapped the pieces of her body in plastic, put them back into the vehicle, and drove them home. With Tara's remains back at the house, this shitbag went on to have a normal afternoon with the kids and Verena, who were all under the impression that Tara had just up and left because she didn't care. According to Click on Detroit, Stephen made sure to play the part well by leaving seven different voicemails for Tara legitimately sounding like he was pissed off that she'd abandoned them and that she owed it to him and the kids to at least call him back. The audacity was reaching new levels. After a normal day with the kids in the au pair, everyone turned in for the night, and once they were all asleep, Stephen drove around looking for a place to hide Tara's remains. Dateline reports that he picked none other than Stony Creek Park. He loaded the dismembered pieces of Tara's body onto his children's sled to make the transportation easier, but according to him, the sled took off in the snow and crashed at the bottom of a hill. The sled broke, and Tara's remains were scattered. He panicked, found them all, and buried them in the snow before heading back to the house with no one even realizing that he'd left. Obviously, we know that Tara's torso was found in the garage, so this confession was far from over. After a single day of Tara's remains being in the park, Dateline reports that Stephen was worried that he hadn't hid them well enough. It looks like he just buried them in the snow and snow melts. So he went back, got everything but her torso because it was now frozen to the ground, and re-hid them under things like fallen trees. He might have thought he was one step closer to getting away with it all at this point, but right after hiding her remains for the second time, the sheriff announced that they'd be searching the park that he had hid them at, so he went back again, but this time only for Tara's torso. Dateline reports that he dug it up, threw it over his shoulder, put it back into his vehicle, and then drove it to his dad's machine shop where he put it in bags and hid it behind some boxes in the loft. Tara's torso stayed in the machine shop for five days before Stephen started worrying that it was going to thaw and start to smell, so he went to the shop, put it into that green tote, brought it back to the house, and put it in the garage. It's not uncommon for people in Michigan to keep things that need to be refrigerated in their garage, so if anything, Stephen may have thought this was going to buy him a little time, but it bought him nothing. The tote is exactly how they caught him. They were eventually able to recover 11 out of 14 pieces of Tara's remains and had to DNA test every single one of them to confirm that they were all hers. With that, the sheriff's department was going to do whatever they could to make sure that he got the prison sentence he deserved. (music) 
Stephen was released from the hospital for his frostbite mishap after a couple of days. And on his way out, Dateline reports that the sheriff himself made sure to send over a brand new black and white striped prison uniform solely for the purpose of shame, an excellent use of petty. With his confession, you might assume that Stephen planned to plead guilty, but he didn't. He was charged with first-degree murder, but he and his defense argued that it was second-degree, that there was no premeditation. Mind you, this was a new attorney because his old one was out. When it came time for Stephen's trial, the only argument was whether or not he'd be convicted of first-degree murder or second-degree. And first-degree doesn't always mean that you had an elaborate plan days or even hours in advance. It can mean that there was an opportunity for you to change your mind during the process and chose not to. When it comes to strangulation, you have a lot of time to change your mind. According to Click on Detroit, the medical examiner was firm in saying that it would have taken at least 3 minutes and 45 seconds for Tara to die, which might not seem like a lot when you're thinking about watching TV or listening to a podcast, but 3 minutes is a long time to manually strangle someone until they die. Continuing on with the argument for first-degree murder, it didn't make sense to many people why Stephen said that the two were arguing about her traveling for work so much. Tara's sister Alicia testified that Tara had never told her about her travels ever being an issue in their marriage. And frankly, it's because Tara traveled so much that Stephen was able to have a relationship with their au pair, a relationship that he'd started working on almost as soon as she got to their house. According to the Detroit Free Press, Verena said that it started off small with him telling her that she was beautiful and flirting with her, and then it turned to texting, and eventually Dateline reports that Stephen exposed himself to her. Eight days before Tara was killed, the Detroit Free Press reports that Stephen told Verena, you're beautiful and I want to sleep with you, and started sending her texts saying that he was itchy, which apparently meant that he wanted sex. They kissed and cuddled, and on the night before Tara's murder, things got physical. Reports go into pretty graphic detail about what exactly happened between the two, but I think you get the idea. It was up to the jury to decide which degree of murder Stephen was guilty of, and it wasn't easy for them. It took three days for them to reach a verdict, and when they did, it was second-degree murder. It felt like a blow, but the sentencing for second-degree could still wind up equaling a life sentence. While everyone waited for Stephen's sentencing hearing, the absolute insanity did not stop. The Oakland Press reported that while he was in jail for suspicion of murdering his wife, he exchanged notes with a female inmate saying that he wanted to get her into a broom closet. I looked up this particular inmate and she was in there for stabbing her eight and five-year-old daughters to death and she had also killed her three dogs and pet mouse. The outlet reports that he also exchanged letters with a female inmate who had beaten her two-year-old son to death. This sentencing could not come fast enough, and on February 1st of 2008, almost a year after Tara's murder, WZZM reports that the judge went outside of the sentencing guidelines and gave him 50 to 80 years in prison. CNN quoted the judge as calling Stephen demonic, manipulative, barbaric, and dishonest. He won't be up for parole until he's at least 87. In the years since, Tara's sister went on to adopt their niece and nephew and have provided the most loving and stable home for them imaginable. They gave them the therapy necessary to try and process the traumas they experienced, and they are currently thriving. 
The family also created the Terra Liberation Foundation in Terra's honor, which according to Turning Point Macomb, gives emergency cash assistance to domestic violence survivors. They host an annual Terra's Walk every year to raise money for survivors of domestic violence and to bring awareness to its prevalence and dangers. The next walk will be held on Saturday, September 22, 2022 at 9 a.m. It's at the Freedom Hill Banquet and Event Center at 14900 Metropolitan Parkway in Sterling Heights, Michigan. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Tara's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month, all your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch, and of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Additional note here, the Betrayed episode is titled Betrayed, Beware the Au Pair, and there's an episode of Scorned Love Kills titled The Au Pair Affair.